Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello and welcome back to Headstrong. You're listening with me, Louis Strong. Now, this is a podcast where I sit down with a variety of individuals in the public eye to just have a chat with them and learn about their lives and their careers. But notably, I want to learn what the word headstrong means to them, to inspire you, the listener, to believe in yourself, to talk about your vulnerabilities and reinforce your self-worth. Now, this series of the podcast is coined an innings with and is entirely devoted to the sport of cricket. This series, we are supporting the wonderful Ruth Strauss Foundation and is sponsored by Ascot Group and McGill and Partners. But more on the sponsors and the charity later on in the podcast, so stay tuned. Now, in the first two episodes, I had Joss Butler and Dom Bess. And this third episode is with the incredible West Indian cricketer, Jason Holder. Jason recently lost out on the test captaincy for the West Indies. But as you can tell in this conversation, which was before he lost the captaincy, he wanted to devote his time and energy to other forms of cricket and indeed focus on himself a little bit more, considering being a captain is such a selfless position. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Jason was extremely honest and open and really divulges into great detail. So enjoy this episode. Jason, thank you very much for joining me on my podcast, Headstrong. I really appreciate it. Where do I find you at the moment? I am located right now in Barbados, man. Uh, been back home about roughly a week and a half after being away from home for about six months. So 
it's good to be back and good to be around familiar faces and, and trying to enjoy some time off well as little as it can be yeah, absolutely it's actually a rare day here in the uk i've got some sun coming in which is very surprising yeah probably not in the copious amounts that you do uh, i don't know if you actually even um remember me because jason and i we we have met um uh actually a couple of occasions but the one that springs to mind was a fun evening we had actually at a hotel on the west coast in barbados for a fantastic charity evening for the desmond haynes foundation um do you remember that i remember the evening i honestly don't remember meeting you there uh, <laughs> i probably met quite a few people that evening so oh it's, you it's did always season, so but you, i definitely remember the evening is there a big uh, big group WhatsApp group to rally the troops for events like that? Um, no. Um, Desi and I, we play golf together a lot, you know, so we play at the same golf club. So um, I'm actually pretty cool with Desi because we obviously spend a lot of time together and stuff. So, you know, we talk a lot of cricket and, you know, I remember he, him asking me to come around to charity and, and it was a good event, man, really good event. It's good to see people get around and I raise money for a really good cause, so. Uh, I'm sure the, the proceeds went to, uh, well, the worthy cause in terms of his foundation. And, you know, I know that those kids and stuff benefit tremendously from it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're definitely going to talk about that a bit later on. Um, but I want to just talk about, um, as we kick things off on the start of our chat, just about your kind of early life. Because you were born in Bridgetown in Barbados. And I would argue that many of the people listening who are British listeners have this kind of preconception of Barbados as this beautiful sunshine beaches and a holiday destination for 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 Brits but quite often that's not not the case and not necessarily an accurate representation of the nation so I was just wondering what what your how it was um being born into Bridgetown and what your what your upbringing was like well I honestly think is a, is a big tourist hub um particularly for the for the for the Brits you know they love coming here and just I guess is a way for them to get away from all the cold soppy weather in, in the UK <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah growing up in Barbados for me was actually quite fun you know I went to childhood from primary school and I actually went to school with Chris Jordan oh no um, way yeah obviously yeah, he was a little older than me and but we all played cricket and for us growing up the main sport was always cricket so we played tons of cricket in the streets, tons of cricket on the school pastures. Um, we had a hardcore art school in the middle of our, uh, of our um, playground. And that was really the, the hub for cricket, you know. And we had to obviously share the hardcore with uh, the basketballers and, and netballers from time to time. But, you know, again, cricket always dominated um, the spotlight on, on, on the playing field. And from there, you know, you just grew that love. Um, I then got a little bit deeper into it by, by watching international cricket on TV, seeing people like Curly Ambrose, Courtney Wolves, even the same Desmond Haynes, Brian Lara. Uh, and for me, that was really the inspiration. That's what really kicked me to that next level where, where you know, I wanted to, to get a little deeper into it. You know, um, quite luckily, my parents were very supportive of me. Um, they put me into some junior programs and I started at the Empire Cricket Club, which is uh, a pretty big cricket club in, in, in the context of producing some test players. Um, but yeah, I started there on a, a summer camp and then it was meant to materialize into a junior program. Uh, but unfortunately, it didn't, it didn't go according to plan. So then my mom took me up in there and, and enrolled me into the Wanderers Cricket Club. And I've been a member of Wanderers Cricket Club from then until now. And that was around, I reckon, about around year seven. And yeah, I haven't really looked back from them. I've got so <laughs> much to, to, to thank the Wanderers Cricket Club for. 
you know, we were lucky enough in 2002, 2004 and six to have three tours to the UK. Um, the first one, we took one team. And then the last two tours, we had two teams over on the 15 and on the 17 team. So it was a wonderful experience for us youngsters to go over there uh, and experience English culture. Um, the weather, you know, obviously playing against quality opposition. Because um, we would have had a few instances where touring teams would have come down to the to Barbados and it was always competitive, you know, with Barbados getting the better of the English teams, obviously. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, that experience for me paved the way for me because it, it gave me that encouragement to take it even even more seriously. You know what I mean? As a young see you growing up, you just look at the enjoy the game, but seeing a different country through cricket you know, open up different avenues, different different perspectives for me on, on cricket. And I, I just got a little bit more curious. So, you know, again, I was always lucky to make age group teams at a very young age. So I would spend two, three years in one age group. And it was really good for me. And I've, I've been one of the fortunate players to come straight through the system. So I played on the 15, um, on the, sorry, on the 13, 15, 17, 19, West Indies A. And then I've obviously played international cricket for West Indies. So, that's a, just a, a brief uh, explanation <laughs> of, of my, my upbringing. And yeah, I, I, I can't sit here to boast of who I am. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. Had it not been for people like um, Kevin Watson, my Kevin's at the Wanderers Cricket Programme, uh, and then people like Dexter Toppin, Ezra Mosley, uh, Roddy Eswick, you know, who all played a massive role in my upbringing and, and my development. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll definitely dive into certain parts of your career a bit later on. But something I definitely want to have a look at is um, and, and explore is, having experienced it myself, Barbados and the Caribbean in general has just an incredibly vibrant culture, which is just so infective to be around. And part of that culture, massive over there, is sports. And, and as you were just saying there, you know, um, cricket is massive over there. But I, I was, I was going to ask you, is cricket definitely the number one sport in Barbados? Because football is enormous out there as well, as is paddle tennis. So what, how, how, how do people, and as you say as well, basketball. So how do these kind of sports kind of build into to early childhood? Are people choosing one sport or is everyone just getting stuck into all of these things? Um, I think it's a case where very young, young, young players, you know, or young, young people, they, they do what most of us did when we were growing up. We especially try to try to be involved in everything. You know, obviously trying to balance school as well too. But as a youngster, you just don't want to limit yourself to one particular field. You know, some some people at that at that age are very headstrong as to where they want to be as well too. So um, I still would say cricket is the number one sport in the region. Of course, you would. Um, but, yeah, but I mean, <laughs> no, but I mean seriously, we've had. With the advent of people like Usain Bolt, um, mm. Veronica Campbell, Brown, who have really turned the head of athletics in, in the Caribbean. You know, Jamaica's can now boast of, of having a really nice facility, a really nice hub for athletics. And, and people normally go there now to train. Whereas uh, in the past, you know, if you wanted to pursue a really serious career of athletics, you'd have to go abroad to do it. But now we've got the resources in Jamaica now to make it happen. So I, I, I would say now athletics is, is pretty prominent within the Caribbean as well too, but mm. I still mm. think cricket leads the way. Um, obviously now with, with things moving forward, obviously in the world moving forward, it's open up different avenues and, and different opportunities for other sports. Because when I was growing up, for instance, there was no rugby. But rugby is now a, a big sport now uh, in the Caribbean and, and, it's, and it's a, there's a big um, competition throughout the region with, with rugby. So, 
that's just to show you where it was back then and, and where it's come now. But um, yeah. yes, there's, there's still sports like football, um, basketball, which still have, has a massive following uh, and, and, and people still have a great interest in playing them. But yeah, to, to beat cricket right now in the Caribbean, I, I don't think it's, it, it would be fair to say that, that, that cricket isn't the number one sport in the region. Do you fancy yourself as a bit of a rugby player? Do you reckon you could make it in? What position do you think you'd be? I know nothing about rugby. <laughs> I would never, I would never step on a rugby field other than to, to be probably on the sidelines to watch it. It's just a little bit too con, too much contact for me. Man. I yeah, I think that. I think we'll stay clear. I mean, I've witnessed yeah. some incredible cricket games around the world and obviously on TV as well, but none are quite as impactful as those that I, as you were describing as well. You know, even in the streets, on the beaches, in the fields, in in the Caribbean. I think that the culture as well is that cricket can be played almost anywhere because it's such a, it's a ready to go sport. Um, but you know, often when you see these things as well, there's no matching kit and no clothing. What, what does this say about the, um, the cricket culture and like the, the ability to just get up and play? Well, yeah, I mean, like, again, it, it's something that's as easy to set up, you know, you just need, mm. you don't even really need a, a bat per se, because we've played cricket with anything to, to represent a bat, but yeah, ball is probably the most important tool. And I think once you got that ball, then it makes it yeah. easy, man. You could just put anything for a stump or you could just play. We used to play one miss. So there, there are a few ways to just get a game going. But yeah, culturally, that's the easiest thing to, to probably set up. I mean, well, between that and football. But yeah, it, it, it's just something that was that was always ready to go because, you know, Again, cricket is still the number one sport. You know, people love to play. People love to be involved in it. People love to watch it. So, yeah, doing 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 cricket in the Caribbean has has been made easy for people like me because it was always around you. You know, mm-hmm. whether you be at school, whether you be at home, whether it be at a camp, whether you know you're just you're just leaving home to to probably go down the road to to a nearby shop. You know, you just you just see it, and 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 that's how easy it was to get into it. I think from a grassroots level, though, um, I know I know personally as well from, of, of the challenges. Of course, it is so easy to just have that ball and play the play the game, but the challenges of equipment from a grassroots level is so challenging. Uh, and I remember actually a couple of years ago with Desmond, um, we we sent over about like fifty bags of just kit from the UK and just sent it over, and then that just gets distributed out, which is so incredible. And that, that's part of Desmond Desmond's foundation, which is brilliant. But um, you know, how important is it for things like that to be going on in the Caribbean, you know, to distribute um, at a grassroots level um, the, the sort of equipment that is actually needed? Because quite often it's not, it's not readily available. Yeah, it is very, very important. Um, and, and Desmond has done a, a really great job in, in starting that initiative, especially to support the less fortunate youngsters growing up. Because for me, that's the only way you keep the interest and keep the sport alive. Um, it is very difficult. These are very difficult times in, in, in the world in terms of the economies. And, you know, cricket gear is not one of the most affordable things, um, especially for players, people who, who, who are not working, you know, uh, or not making that much or the breadwinner of their family and have to provide for others. So it, it's good when you have people doing these things to, to support it because if, if it's not supporting, you know, you can easily see cricket dying. Uh, and I just through not having the resources to, to further it and develop it. So it warms my heart, honestly, to see what people like Desmond are doing. Um, and I know that they have a genuine interest about the development of West Indies cricket. Uh, and, and 
well, by extension, well, Barbados cricket and then by extension of West Indies cricket. Because if we do, if we just don't have it, as I said before, cricket will be dead. And, mm-hmm. you know, there have been many cries in the world, especially for test cricket, that people are saying test cricket is dying. Um, and that people just, youngsters just growing, coming through, wanting to play T20 cricket. But I can tell you that a lot of people that I've played with in the recent times is, and it's actually very surprising because you still always think that players coming in just want to be on the white ball circuits, running around the world and playing. But the amount of players that still want to play test cricket, man, it's still amazing, man. It's also it's also heartwarming. Um, for me personally, I had the opportunity obviously to play test cricket at a, at a relatively young age. Uh, and yeah. I remember playing my first test match and I was I was baffled at how, how hard it is physically on, on the body, you know. And I, I said to myself, like, I'm really not sure if I could do this, man. I'm really not sure if I could do this very, very long. But then you just taste that bit, that bit of success. And for me, that's the adrenaline rush that you need, man. You just have that success and you're just saying, well, look, I want a bit more of it. You know, I just, I, I feel as though I can, I can do a little bit more. There are some tough test matches where very dry, where you don't have any runs, wickets. And it's a toil. But, you know, I, I would put all those, those kind of test matches behind me just for that piece of success because mm. that success for me is just a feeling that is, that is kind of difficult to explain because it, it's just one of those things that, I guess, I don't know if you play golf, you know, you, I'm sure golfers, you mm. know, we hit one good shot and, and it, it just keeps you coming back. You've got the bug, but, you know, you hit 12,000 other bad ones and, and it still keeps you coming back <laughs> because you hit that one good one. And, and, and that's the same similar feeling with test cricket, in my opinion. You know, it just, you have tough days, you tough it out, you get through it. You know, and then you have that one good day that, you know, it just is a dream to come true, dream come true. And you just want to keep reliving it. There's not many sports in the world where you can play for five days and just have that immersive atmosphere. Yeah, test cricket is, is the one for me, definitely. Um, but it's, it's worth saying as well, um, for anyone listening as well, if you do have any kit at all, reach out to the Headstrong page and I'm sure I can liaise with Jason and Desmond and we, we can easily sort some stuff out for that. But let's look at, um, let's look at your early years, Jason, if that's uh, okay. Because I, I'm interested in, as a kid in the Caribbean, as sport is so dominant in, in the culture and, and the kind of desire to play with your friends and play cricket, as you would say, how realistic is it to get into a professional side and that route? I think it's, it's, it's very realistic to get into the professional side. Um, look, the Crick, Cricket Westies have done an, an excellent job in, in creating a franchise system. So it, gone in the days now where it used to be island versus island. Yeah. You know, we still have that island rivalry because most of the franchises are still named after the islands, but it's still a franchise system, so there, there are opportunities for players from, let's say, Grenada to come play in Barbados, Barbados to go and play in Jamaica, Trinidad to go play in Guyana because of the franchise system. But um, I think more often than not, you know, you just need our support within. You know, once you understand how it goes, once you understand what people say, and you just, you just, you just have the, the, the surroundings in front of you. Uh, and I think Barbados has done an ex- exceptional job in, in creating that, that kind of a camp we have something called a center of excellence where we've got different age groups coming down to Kensington and Noble and just practicing, practicing throughout the week this series is brought to you by two magnificent sponsors Ascot Group and McGill and Partners Ascot Group is a global speciality insurance and reinsurance group with a record of underwriting excellence and superior claims service founded in 2001 
The company provides a broad range of property and casualty solutions to customers worldwide through its platforms in London, Bermuda and the United States. Ascot is a long-standing supporter of charities with a link to sport, including ongoing sponsorship of the Great Britain Wheelchair Rugby Club. With a recent increase in mental health awareness, the company is particularly proud to support Headstrong Season 5 and Innings With, which focuses on the psychological well-being challenges that arise from professional sports. McGill & Partners is a boutique insurance broker, helping corporate clients find specialist solutions for their most challenging and complex risks. Growing rapidly since its launch in 2019, the company operates in the UK, Europe and the United States and prides itself on working with some of the biggest companies in the world. And you can find out more on their website, mcgillpartners.com. McGill and Partners understands high performance and the mental health challenges that can be associated with it, regardless of the industry people are working in. The company is fully committed to their employees' well-being and are delighted to be sponsoring the Headstrong podcast series. It is also delighted to support the Ruth Strauss Foundation. Thank you to these two wonderful sponsors. So we were talking about um, breaking into breaking into professional sport, particularly in Barbados, but in the, in the West Indies culture in general. But it sounds like from what you were saying earlier that it became sort of a reality for you quite early on because you were given quite a lot of opportunities from a young age with the likes of getting breaking into some sort of team. So what, what, when, when was it for you when you thought, do you know what, yeah, cricket is actually going to be you know, my job for a period of time now? I wouldn't say a job, but I thought after my, my first tour to England with the Wanderers Cricket Club, you know, and seeing England through cricket, I said to myself, well, what are the other possibilities to see in the world? You know, um, and maybe I didn't, I mean, because at that time, cricket wasn't really a, well, it was a semi-professional thing in the Caribbean. Even international cricket, you know, outside international cricket, I don't think anybody was really paid um, in the Caribbean. So I just wanted to see how far I can go in cricket, you know, and that's when I really got the encouragement to push on, just push through. Um, that first tour in 2002 in, in England was, was, was great. And I did really well in England as well too. And we did really well as a side. So it, it was one of those things where you ask yourself, how, 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 how far can you really take it? Just based on the fact that you've, you've gotten a piece of it. And I can relate that to my first test, my first tour with, with West Indies, where, you know, you obviously play first-class cricket, um, you obviously play West Indies 18 cricket, but the treatment and the, and the exposure in international cricket in comparison to first-class cricket is way different. You know, you share rooms in, 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 in first-class cricket, you, you know, you travel in the economy when you travel, and then suddenly now you're, you're traveling business class on an Emirates, fl- on an Emirates flight to Bangladesh, and you get to Bangladesh, you got your own room. Um, the treatment is just is, is next level. So it's it's that just getting that exposure and you're saying to yourself, oh, whoa, this is something that I really would like to, you know, to have for the rest of my career. Why why play for a slash cricket and experience a, a, a massive step below when you you've got the ability to to play international cricket and, and make a make a really good living from it? Uh, and that's just about the, the, the eye that I look at it from. So, um and going back to my point around my early days and my early development it was just really having that tour getting that opportunity seeing foreign country 
you know, playing against foreign opposition and then actually doing well, which gave me the encouragement to say, well, look, look, I can really push through and, and take it to the next level. And, and, and that's for me where, where, where it started. Definitely. I mean, your call-up came pretty, as you say as well, at a very young age into the ODI format first and then you transitioned into the test team. Did you, of course you played for the, the, the West Indies A team and, and the teams just below the professional side, but then the exposure came. Did you have any preconceptions before joining the, um, the first team? Um, you know, I know, of course, you probably had some friends in the team already and people that you definitely played for. But was there that any preconceptions and concerns before joining, joining the, big, the big team? Yeah, there, there were actually. Um, I was really nervous because I didn't know how I was going to be taken to in the squad. Um, none of my immediate friends were there. Uh, I was obviously the youngest person on that tour. And it, it was it was kind of tough to transition to the in, into the West Indies team because you know you've always heard these horror stories about how how the island the island rivalry goes within the team you know Trinidadians against Barbadians you know Jamaicans against Trinidadians and I mean these things these these things always um, popped up into conversations that I've been around you know with former West Indian players but to to get into the team being a very very young player. And you know you, you you're going from not having a roommate to being on your on your own, and and it's now for you to find somebody within the in the within the environment, sorry, to to be comfortable with, and you know that you can share. Because I'm not one to be stuck in my room, you know. Normally when I'm on tour, I'm in one of my mates' room, and and we just you know you're talking, you you just lying me, you're just passing time rather than rather than being alone. Um, I could tell you, for instance, you know, when you're struggling on tour and you, you, you're going back into your room alone, it could be a very dark place. So I've, I've always been one to, to be around people because I know how difficult it can be, you know, and, and the last thing you want to be is alone, you know, and, and that's what makes a really strong team, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're there for your teammate, and not only in the good times, but in the bad times. So that transition into Western East team was difficult for me. Um, and it, it, was, it was tough in a way where... I had the opportunity early on to, to play for Chennai Super Kings in IPL. And I left home, went to IPL. And then right after that was the IC Champions Trophy. I was selected in the West Indies team for that. So I then went from not being at home for, sorry, being at home to not being at home for three months, which was something I was unaccustomed to. Uh, and then it was a tough time. You know, I played a few games for Chennai. Went to the Champions Trophy. I, I don't think I played. I think I played one practice game or stuff, or something like that. And it was just tough, you know, just tough because you're not playing, not really, quote unquote, we're not playing good cricket as a team, and, and I'm not enjoying myself, you know, as 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 much as I, I I think I should, you know. And then there was just a lot of tension within the dressing room, and it was just not a comfortable place for me. Uh, and these are these are moments and instances in in, in my career where I would always look back on and say, well, look to come through things like that, you've got to be mentally strong. I've always tell people, man, you could have the world of talent um, coming into international cricket, but if you don't have the world of heart, man, you will never make it at this level because that's what drives you, man. You've got to be mentally tough. You've got to be mentally strong. And I, I feel it is even more of a mental game than, than you know, your, your skills. Um, you can, again, you can have the skills, but if you can't implement them under pressure, you know, when, you, when you, your chips are down, when your back is against the wall, you know, that's what makes a, a, a really good cricketer. And to come through such situations that I've come through so far in my career, you know, I could probably write a book about, about a few of them. I probably will write a book you know, <laughs> to, to, share, to share a bit of them. But 
I think I've been through a lot, man, um, especially prior to taking the captaincy and then, and then obviously being handed the captaincy. So, mm. look, I've, I've had a lot of experiences where I can, can definitely turn back on. And whenever I feel, I mean, find myself in a tough situation, you know, for me, it's just, you know, looking for a way to get out of it. Just, that, just when you did break into the team then, um, and you were, you were talking about that kind of that, that being on your own in your, ho- in your hotel room, was there anything in particular, um, any kind of coping mechanisms or anything that you did in particular, apart from kind of seeking, um, kind of your, going, going to hang out with your mates and stuff, was there anything that you did yourself to kind of just kind of stay, stay kind of grounded and, you know, almost, um, you know, focus on your own happiness ultimately? Um, not much, to be honest. You watch TV, um, you, you talk with people back at home mm. uh, and that was really it. Um, you know, when it was time to train, you know, I just try to train as hard as I possibly can. And, and I hope that I got an opportunity. It didn't come on my first tour in Bangladesh. Yeah. I went to Australia, you know, I trained well, started well, uh, and I got the opportunity. So I played the first two ODI games in, in Perth. And well, one in Perth and the well, yeah, all two were in Perth actually, and and then I got dropped after having two really good games. You know, we didn't win, um, and yeah, I ended up spending the rest of the tour on the bench. Um, and then I said to myself, "Well, yeah, I got my feet in, got my feet wet, I got the IPL, I secured an IPL contract, and from there now it's just to find ways to to break in and, and stay in." You know, and, and I remember coming back home. We had Zimbabwe shortly after that. I wasn't selected for that uh, because we only have 13 in the home series. So I wasn't part of that squad. And then we had a tri-series with India and, and Sri Lanka. You know, I, I didn't originally make that team either, again, because we only kept 13. But then there was an injury to Ravi Rampal and I came in for the back half of the, the, the competition. Mm. And, and I did well. And then I stayed in the team to go to... Ghana to play against Pakistan and for me that was the breakthrough there because the yeah. first ODA game you know I both I both 10 of us with 13 runs and got four wickets and I should have had five but I mean arguably, arguably I probably should have still still been on four because I, I got one that I that was probably missing the stumps I think yeah. on Hawk. but at that stage if there wasn't a DRS but when they did the the Hawkeye up on the screen that one was missing the stumps off Jam Shed, but I got more at my nicked off and the umpire started setting out. So, <laughs> you know, you, 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 want, you win some, you lose some. But for me, that game was a breakthrough. Uh, and then two games subsequent to that, um, we needed 15 runs off the last of and I was able to tie it. So that series for me gave me that, that encouragement again to, to push even further, you know, to push on a little bit more and, and keep my head down and, and, and grounded. Well, it wasn't long after that uh, that the kind of the India tour was abandoned, and then the, everything happened with um, the West Indies cricket team. There was a restructuring, and you were given the captaincy at an incredible, incredibly young age uh, for the for the tour of South Africa. Am I right, or just after? It was the tour of South Africa. Yeah, yeah tour of South Africa. Yes. Uh, how was that that the captaincy handed to you? I mean, I'm intrigued to know what that structure was like uh, in terms of the the how long the process was. Was it were there meetings involved? Were there calls? Or was it actually quite a quick process considering what had happened? So I was selected for the test team um, in South Africa, and when we were actually playing a practice game, so normally I guess they let to select the teams. Um, a relatively early before tour just to get the logistical side of things all the way. Um, so I remember being at the practice practice ground where we played a practice or warm-up game and I was approached by Richard Richardson. So I guess there was talk of, of them wanting to give me the captaincy. 
And he asked me what, what, how I felt about it and, and, you know, if I would take it. So I said, well, I really don't know. You know, I, I would have to give it some thought and, and see, see what happened. Because I had been on that tour to India, you know, which was called off, which, which probably fueled fuel fuel, uh, uh, a lot of decisions that were made afterwards. Yeah. And Clive Lloyd was the chairman of selectors at that time. I remember him calling me out to, to dinner and he sat me down and, you know, he, he ran me through everything. And, you know, at that time, I couldn't believe it. You know, and I remember having a conversation with Dwayne Bravo, who was the captain at that time, who was the captain on the tour to India. And I, I told him the situation because Bravo and I were always very good. And out of respect, you know, I just spoke to him and, you know, I put it on the table for him. You know, and I guess he was he was really upset, disappointed. Um, he told me to take it, you know, and... and you know, I, I, I guess I got a bit of backlash for taking it from other players. And, uh, but over a period of time, you know, I, I, I guess I got the respect back from those players. And, you know, I think going back, looking back, sorry, Anna, it, it was a really pivotal moment in my career. Mm. But I always tell people before I was the captain of West Indies, I was a boy. But shortly afterwards, you know, I had to I had to go into a man, grow into a man. And look, captaincy is not, it's not an easy road. It's really not easy. But, um, when you're entrusted with the responsibility of leading men on a cricket field or men in anything, um, especially when they don't come together as much as they should, it is always a difficult task. And yeah, we've had some really tough days on, on the field and off the field. Um, and I, and I always, always felt when I was given the captaincy that something always was going wrong. You know, And when I say wrong, it's more, more off the field issues than anything else. It took a while for things to settle down. It took a, a long while for things to settle down. And at one point, I was wondering if it would ever settle down. Mm. And I guess when the MOU situation hit on the tour of South, South Africa, it was just to the point where, you know, you guys have just got to take it or leave it. You know, it was just there on the table. If you wanted to play, you would do it. If you don't want to play, well, then, you know, you, you, you had the options. And I think after that tour, after well, two tours after that, I would say things really settled down. But then there was always the this person should be playing against this or ahead of this person, and you would always get that in in, in, in professional sport, to be honest. But because we're 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 a region uh, and it's just different islands, it, you always get that country to country rivalry or that country that country against country bias and, and that, that kind of thing. So. Yeah, there's always debate around the Caribbean as to who should be playing um, <laughs> and who shouldn't. So, yeah, I think I think that's a good account of, of how things how things went for me. I, back I, then. I doubt I doubt that rivalry is going anywhere anytime soon. <laughs> I don't think so either, man. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, as you, as yeah. you say there, it's really interesting because you you took the captaincy at such a young age, and you 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 said it yourself, going from a boy to a man. It's great that um, your predecessor. Um, gave you that kind of that confidence to say take it take it but then you it's 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 uh, sad to hear you know that you had people kind of jumping at your feet to say you know oh maybe I deserve that opportunity more than you how where were you mentally at this point because you were so young being given this responsibility especially and on a nation for a nation that is so rich in cricket history um, you know, the pressure is there on your shoulders, along with maybe some of this this back chat as well. I mean, where were you up, you know, up here? I was a bit all over the place, to be honest, because I never envisioned the captaincy to be so 
demanding off the field. And, and, it, and that was just where the challenge was for me. I think when I crossed the line, it was just like a whole load dropped off my shoulders. But when you've got to take into consideration selection, then you've got to, you've got to deal with the disappointed players within the dressing room. Um, then you've got to deal with players and, and their, their wants and, and, and dislikes. And it was just a lot. And that tour, that tour in South Africa was my first cap assistant. And we lost, we lost that tour for one. We won one game in, in Port Elizabeth, you know, and then we moved on to the World Cup. In the World Cup, we left South Africa, went directly to, to Australia. And I remember my first press conference. And I had never seen so many journalists in one room. I mean, it was a massive room and it was packed with journalists. Obviously, this was my first World Cup. Just appointed as captain in the tour prior. And, you know, yeah, they were, they were hounding me with questions. And, and for me, that was a bit overwhelming. You know, because I never envisioned it to be to be like that. But credit to Philip Spooner, who was our media manager at that time, and he he helped settle my nerves, and and he was 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 kind of the big bad wolf in the room. You know, he was able to push off a few a few journalists and and stuff. But you know, I still wanted to 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 be seen as one of those people who could take control of the situation, and I I, I felt it. Uh, I mean, yeah, I understand he was helping, but I, I, I still didn't want him to, to, to interject too much because then it sends a message that I need somebody over my shoulder to help, mm. you know? And I, and I just didn't think it was the right thing at the right time. I think anything that would probably create a little bit more media attention than, than I really needed at that particular phase. But yeah, the World Cup was the first, was my second stint, first World Cup. And, and, you know, I had a really good World Cup as well. You know, I got wickets, I got runs. I think I only was dismissed once in the World Cup. And I scored two half centuries and a 40. So batted three times, two half centuries and a 40 and dismissed one. So, sorry, no, um, no, I actually was dismissed all three times. No, I remember, but I, yeah, I remember batting three times and I got 56 against South Africa in Sydney. And then I got 57 against India in Perth. And I got 40 against New Zealand in the, in the quarterfinal where we were knocked out. So, yeah, I had a pretty good World Cup with the bat. And, and the ball, you know, I, I yeah. got wickets as well too. So, again, that that really settled me a little bit more. But then you come back to the Caribbean in front of your in front of your home your home crowds, and that's where another challenge lied. Because you know, going to a place like Trinidad, where the Trinis were really upset with how the whole situation was handled after India, and and they were against everybody, you know. So it's hard to go to Trinidad, even when you were going you were going on to Trinidad to practice. Even their their ground staff and stuff were were very difficult to deal with because they they didn't they didn't have any care in the world because no Trinidadians were around and yeah they wouldn't give us what we wanted in terms of pitches uh, practice facilities were crap and and that was another dilemma so it's almost like you playing playing away because you know you, the, the yeah the, the ground staff the people around you are not supportive so I mean you had that you had countries like Ghana who for whatever reason never really got much international cricket when I first started to play. It's only in recent times we've been to Ghana. So they had their 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 feud as well with Westings Cricket Board and yeah it was just a lot. It was just a lot man. And again more so off the field. I felt a burden off my shoulders when we crossed the line to play cricket to be honest. Yeah, um, and and I could relate to a few other instances in, in my career which you know, again, if 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 I wasn't as strong as I would, I would have thrown in the towel. Definitely thrown in the towel and given up the captaincy. And I crossed my mind on a few occasions, but 
for me, giving it up doesn't really solve anything. It just makes me look weak because, you know, I've walked away from something and walked away from a challenge. And that's not me. You know, I've always been been fueled by by challenges and I, and I like to prove people wrong because that's just my persona. And, and, and that's the great determination that I possess. And for me, that's gotten me through and, and kept me kept me alive in international cricket. Absolutely, absolutely. Looking at just one, like a couple of, an example of in, in incidents off the field. I know it's very difficult. I can only imagine, because I was speaking to Andrew Strauss about it and, you know, the challenges of captaincy, you can never switch off because, you know, even when you're not playing, that's probably when the most challenges occur, as you're saying. And particularly when you took over as captain and, and throughout your stint so far over the past five, six years, you've had some vibrant personalities in the dressing room. Now, that's always something challenging to negotiate. And, you know, I look at the England dressing room when uh, Straussy was talking about Kevin Peterson. That was a challenge in itself. But you, you yourself probably had a few personalities there as well. How important is it to kind of utilise those personalities and get them on board for the team and, and the goals of the cricket team? And, and what challenges did you face for that? Because managing personalities is a tricky thing. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, this day you still get challenges within the dressing room, man. Um, what I would say now is that me just captaining the test side is a lot easier because those guys are very, very easy to manage. There are not many personalities in our dressing room. You know, I could say that that test team is is one of the most unified teams I've been in in Western history, if not the most. Um, I always have challenges in the in the white ball format where you know you've got quote unquote the big guns coming back into the, to, to the team and. And trying to manage them was wasn't was an easiest job, uh, and again, it, it was a case where individuals individuals just wanted to do what individuals wanted to do, and not per se wanted to do what the team wanted to do. Um, and culturally, I think we were just well off, well off as a, as a as a side to really instill a culture that was 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 healthy. You know, we always had individuals who wanted to do what they wanted to do, <laughs> and. Mm-hmm. It, it was tough to manage, man, especially for me as a youngster. And these guys have played twice as much cricket that, that, that I have. But I, for one, tried to do it through my performances. You know, I was I was one of those players who said, said to, to gain the respect from, from, from these senior guys, I got to show them that I belong, you know. And, and, and I, I went out and, and, and done it. You know, I've... I've had a lot of success playing for West Indies, you know. I've had some really dark days as well, but you know, I've had some really big days in my career. And and I look back on my my career now so far, maybe I haven't fulfilled my potential as I believe in one day cricket, but Test cricket I've done really well. Um, but on average, lower than your Test average, which is always what you want for an all rounder. You know, I've got Test centuries. You know, I've got about seven five wicket hauls. You know, I've got series wins as a captain. So I've I've got a few things to to look back on and, and boast on, Absolutely. but it was difficult in the one day series in the one day setup. Um, you managing people like Chris, who I found easy to manage in all honesty, because Chris is just one of those players who is very to himself, very cool, collect, calm, and collected. He's not a big personality in dressing room, but he has influence. Mm-hmm. Everybody respects mm-hmm. Chris. When Chris speaks, the whole room stops and listens, uh, and that's the level of respect that Chris has within the dress, dressing room. Um, people always struggle a lot with Marlon um, and I got along really well with Marlon Samuels I, I mean uh, if anything you know I was was very very appreciative of, of Marlon Samuels because he him and I always had a really good relationship 
I know things didn't really end well uh, with him not being selected in the, in the World Cup squad and, and then he had a big lash out at me and, and the selectors and other people around. But I, I must I must say, and you know, I can't say anything bad about Marlon Simons. I think Marlon is, it has been one of the easiest people to manage. He's been very supportive, um, <clears throat> very committed as well to to, to Westerns cricket. You know, I, I don't know if that's because he, he never really earned contracts around the world, but you know, he, he's been one of those loyal players to West Indies cricket. And that, I guess that's where the disappointment came in Marlon when it came to the selection of the, the World Cup side. But, um, yeah, I don't think that's something to debate right here now. Uh, but no. <laughs> Yeah, but Marlon was, was one of those players who, in my opinion, was easy to manage. But within the context of the group, he was a well taken to by, by many. So um, it was just one of those things where, you know, I gave Marlon his, his leeway to do what he needs to do. And he's one of those players motivated by people riling him up, people doubting him, people yeah. speaking speaking uh, speaking about him. Uh, and he doesn't need much to get going. Uh, and you know, when he's in that mood, he's he's a hard player to, to stop. But yeah, I, I just think some sometimes our, our egos always got in the way as players in, in Caribbean cricket. And it still, still happens. You know, players think they're bigger than they actually are. And 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 just don't understand that you know this cricket is not about individuals, man. It's, it's a team sport. So for, as a captain, is just trying to to find ways to bring people together. And it has been difficult in the white ball team, but Test cricket, man, we've got a, a great bunch. It's true, it's true. But I think you do you find that almost in every nation, you're going to get a personality that that pops yep. up uh, in every team as well. You know, someone who's probably thinks they're a bit big for their boots. But let's you you talked about it there. You've touched on your own personal performances, and you've talked about the good days and the bad days. And we need to talk about both of them definitely. Um, particularly when you when you did take over as captain, uh, you had so much on your plate as skipper that actually you probably found it quite difficult to deliver on your personal performances because, you know, you're dealing with so much off the field and then you got, got on the pitch and then, uh, you know, for the, when you did take over the captaincy, I mean, I know that you won't mind me saying that, you know, you probably struggled from a personal perspective on delivering performances until, you know, you managed to, you know, break in, you know, in 2018, you were in the, the um, test team of the year. And how, how difficult was it finding that balance from delivering your personal performance and being a captain? Well, honestly, everything started really well for me as a captain, uh, a captain um, slash player. Uh, again, started in South Africa, did well, did well there with both bat and ball, went to the World Cup, had a really good World Cup. Um, and then most of the series, and I was always there and thereabouts with, with my performances. Mm. Test cricket, however, when I, when I first took over the test, captaincy was a tough, tough time. Wickets were hard to come by. Um, I got runs here and there, but not big runs. So it, it, was a, it was a tough period. And the turning point for me was, was the tour in the UAE against Pakistan. To me, I would always tell people that's where my, my career, career turned around. Yeah. Um, I was basically... There was a lot. There were a lot of rumors that I was stripped to the test captaincy before we left. Hadn't heard anything from the selectors, but it was all all through the media, all through uh, all the, the media media lens, um, radio, TV, um, yeah, social media. It was all over. I hadn't heard anything from the selectors, so I was starting to believe it because tradition, not traditionally, but in the, in the past and since great when things that happened, the the player who actually. Um, uh, is about is always probably the last person to find out. So I was starting to believe it. But anyways, we went on 
uh, we had a camp in Barbados prior to, to the tour. And I remember the German select Courtney Brown sat me down at University of West Indies. We were training. And he said to me, you know, young man, this is it. this is it. You know, it's either it's either you get something on the board here, or we can we can have to look past you. And mm. like I was I was in amazement because it's literally two days or a day before we left to go to the UAE, and the chairman selectors comes to tell me the last thing that I want to hear. Um, you already know that you you haven't hit the mark in terms of your personal performances, and and you would think like before you want to go, even if that's the case, like you wouldn't really want to hear that. But it was told to me. And, uh, Again, I, I took it on the chin, man. I, I really didn't know how to react to it. Uh, I said, okay, and I went down to, to the UAE. I remember in a taxi, being in a taxi with Carlos Barfoot and Shane Durrich, and we were heading out for food. And I was sat in the bar and I sat in there for as well. The chairman said, let us give me, give me a, basically an <laughs> ultimatum, if you want to yeah. put it that way. It's, it's either you get performances in a, this, this could be the last trip. And I said to them, well, since I started playing for West Indies, I've never been dropped. And and they said to me, well, just all you got to do is, is just hit your mark, man. So I was just on the opinion, like, all right, this, this could be my last. If this is my last, well, then I can go down and join it. So I said, come in to have a, a great time, man. So for me, it was just made about enjoyment. We played the first test match, pink ball test match. Uh, again, I think I got like one wicket in, in the game. But I, I got, I didn't get much in the first innings, but I got 40 not in the second innings. So that gave me some confidence. Went down to Abu Dhabi. Again, wickets were tough to come by. I think, I got, again, I only got one wicket or something, something like that. But I scored 30 not in the first innings. And then I think, uh, I don't think it made, made much in the second. So, again, relatively quiet game. And I came out to the last test match in Sharjah. And for me, this is really the turning point happened. Um, again, batting well, got out, didn't make runs, got, got a start. I got like 20 odd. Um, and then it came down to the, the second innings. You know, I was down to the second innings because I didn't bat in the second innings, but my second innings bowling performance. So I don't think it got much wickets in the first innings either. So, bowling hard in the evening and first wicket came in. I just told myself, oh, this is it. I got to run in. I got to do something here. This something has to happen. So, I ran in, got one, Sami Islam down to fine leg, bumped out. Second one was Eunice Khan, strangled on the leg side. And then my last wicket on the evening was Ashad Shafiq, caught at gully. And I got three wickets in the space of maybe three or four overs. And I just told myself, just this has to be it. Like, I got to get five wickets here, man. So we went, we went home, came back next day. And I told myself, look, they're going to probably have to drag me off this field in the stretcher because I'm not going to put on the ball. So picked up the ball next morning. I didn't get the wickets as quickly as I did next morning, but uh, wickets fell in the next end. Uh, we were down to Yasser Shah was my fourth wicket. You know, I got him caught at square leg, um, bumped out again. And then my last wicket to, to get the five over was Wahab Riaz. Got him on LBW on review. Uh, well, he was given out and then he reviewed it. So then ended up getting five for 30. First five wicket hauling test cricket. And we went on to win that game. You know, so I was in a in a in a winning cause. So that happened. Then we came back to the Caribbean and look and and never looked back, man. And since then, yeah. I got on like the other six five wicket halls within three four three years, you know, and uh, three or four years. And again, like my numbers now in Test cricket are really good. Thinking was in it was up to number two once in, in the fast bowling rank rankings. 
um, number one and rung the for a little while. Yeah. You know, and even in the batting, batting charts, you know, I was right up there. Uh, and then they won the cricket. I, I did really well for a period of time. Went to the World Cup quarterfinals, and I think I averaged like 50 on the World Cup quarterfinals. Got, got a 99 not out. You know, I got a half century against Ireland as well, too. And and there were some important knocks because we were under pressure in those stages. And yeah, again, wickets as well, too. I think it was his second highest or uh, top, uh, top we could get out in our team as well, too. So I had a really, really good tournament there as well, too, in Zimbabwe. And things like that, you know, you just just keep giving you that curtain of encouragement and that courage to go to keep going out there and do it. Um, so, yeah, that was a, a bit of a rundown for how it went for me um, early on in my career. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, let's let's look at that because you you had that immense success, and as you say, and ultimately it boiled down to you enjoying yourself on that tour. And as soon as you started enjoying your cricket again, the success followed with you. And as I was saying, I mean, you and you that you were in the all round, you were number one in the all round rankings for the ICC for a long time. ICC Test Team of the Year in 2018. Cricket is a team sport that delivers personal accolades. When you do get these kind of personal accolades and, and you know, the um, congratulations for, for your own achievements, how, how do you feel as a player? Does it fill you with confidence or does it actually, do you have this concern now that you have to maintain that level of consistency? Um, I don't pressure myself to say I've got to maintain it. For me, if I keep going up there believing that it's going to happen, it's going to happen for me. You know, I've, 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 done, I've had some success in tough conditions. And when you get success in tough conditions, man, you're proud. You're really, really proud of your achievements, man. Because, for instance, I, I got a five-week haul in, in Hyderabad against India, number one side in the world. And I got some big names in, in, in the five-week haul. And that, to me, that was a big five-week haul because not many players have gone to the subcontinent and, and got, home, got home five-week hauls. You know, I've got two five-week hauls in the subcontinent. And performances like that could only tell you, well, if I could get wickets here in the subcontinent, I could probably get wickets anywhere in the world. And it... It's not, I don't pressure myself to say I've got to maintain it. For me, I just see opposition and I just say, well, I'm going to take you down. I need to, I, I, I'm going to do something special against you. And I want to conquer every single opposition there is in, in world cricket that I, play, that I would play against. I haven't quite done it. You know, I've gotten five calls against a fair few, but I still need, need a, a few more against a, a few other teams. Uh, I've only got three test hundreds, two, two of which I've gotten against England. So, Fell, fell short a few times. I, got a, I think I got an 87 not against Australia. Um, I got a 70 against Sri Lanka. Um, yeah, uh, there are a few teams, in my opinion, that got away. I should have gotten 100 against Australia in, in Sabina Park. And mm. I feel as though I should have gotten 100 against Australia in, in Melbourne in the box in their test match. No, I'm backing really well. And I just chipped one to mid off, trying to close what the day. And, and I, I reckon it jumped on me a bit, but. You know, just a soft, soft dismissal. And I was like 60-odd. I would have been 60-odd in a hole overnight or 70-odd in a hole overnight. And I, I'm pretty sure I should have come back that next day and scored 100. So I was really, really disappointed. And I, and I really wanted that 100 because it would have been a great 100 away from home against top opposition as well, too. Oh, yeah. But it, it, it never materialised. And, and I've always felt like touring New Zealand. New Zealand is a place that I haven't had great success. Uh, well, as much success as I thought I should have. Um, and for instance, like that last tour to New Zealand, like pitches were really good. Mm. Uh, yeah, the bowlers bowl well, but I just feel as though I, I let myself down in that tour. And just to come away with a, a lone half century in the end, uh, yeah, I feel as though I fell short. The bowling didn't go as hard as planned. Um, lots of chances went, went begging. And yeah, just one of those tours where I just got to put my hand up and say it just wasn't your, it wasn't your tour. But 
Bahrain will just feel left a lot with their man, left a lot of runs with there, but that's just the motivation again to keep going. So I, I know I got to go back to New Zealand. If there's one place I got to tour again in my test cricket career is New Zealand because I just and need. And it's beautiful. Club. It's very very beautiful as well too. But I just feel as though <laughs> I've got I've got a. I've got some unfinished business over there. <laughs> definitely. That's great. It's great about the um, personal accolades and definitely let's head back to, back to New Zealand. I'd be up for that as well. Um, but I'm really interested in looking at um, the a little bit more interest with the West Indies cricket team following its success. It is, has also no, not been a stranger to scandal in its past as well. And particularly one that comes to mind is the disputes with the boards. Uh, obviously, it's now Cricket West Indies, but before that, it was the West Indies Cricket Board, right? Yep. Um, and I, money is always a difficult conversation, but in the present day now, I feel like it's something that has to be talked about with the introductions of franchise cricket globally and the options for players to be delivered. Ultimately, it is a player's decision whether they say yes or no to the call-up for an international team. But with the introduction of franchise cricket, surely there must be um, progress and able to facilitate um, being able to play both and, and everyone is satisfied? Or is it more complicated than that? To me, it's a bit more complicated. Franchise cricket is obviously taking the forefront because of the financial gains. For some nations, um, they could afford to pass it up because they paid really well. Uh, for instance, Australia, uh, England, a lot of those English players could afford to turn down contracts because they're, they're really compensated well. Uh, I think there are things in place for them as well too. Um, if they if they choose not to go, maybe the board would subsidize a percentage of the contract in the West Indies is not that case um, and particularly for a lot of other nations it's not that case so I think South Africa West Indies have had a massive struggle with trying to keep players because of how we're paid you know um, South Africa has had a massive massive dilemma with uh, players leaving to go play Cull Park players giving up international status because of the quota system uh, and then obviously financial the financial side of things aren't aren't as blah, aren't as um, glorious as, as other other places, but we've had similar dilemmas where players are turning down West Indies contracts um, to go and make themselves available for T10, Bangladesh Premier League, mm-hmm. IPL. You know, you've got uh, Big Bash, which would pay. I mean, realistically speaking, I, I'm, and I speak frankly. I mean, you could play. I reckon you could play two, three of those tournaments and make just as much money as you play, you'd make playing for West Indies in a financial year. Wow. Um, so, so, again, that's the dilemma. And you got, for instance, somebody like a Nicholas Puran. He's a very, very young player, very, very talented, who's got the world in front of him in terms of opportunity. And uh, he's suddenly given a, a massive contract in the IPL. Now, he gets, I think, I think he went for like a half million dollars in the IPL. A half million dollars in IPL for one tournament, six weeks in a year. And then he's then faced with the dilemma is, well, at that young age, is, do I make want to make money or do I want to make a name for myself in terms of playing international cricket? He then goes the route of solidifying his future in terms of financial, financial, um, his financial future. Uh, and then it's criticized. But, not knowing his situation, no, nobody would ever know his, his personal situation at home. People may not think, well, people may not know he maybe he could be a breadwinner in his family. He could be one of the few resources of financial uh, support within his family. And that's the dilemma that few, few guys face. 
And I'm not saying that that's the situation for Nicholas, but that's just mm-hmm. an example. Um, so he suddenly gave a half million dollars for one tournament and a half million dollars in West East cricket where we take it three years to get, two, three years to get, mm. especially if you play in one format as he is. Um, but yeah, he can earn it in six weeks. So if he does one tournament in that, he probably would go in Bangladesh Premier League, probably may get a couple hundred grand. Um, everywhere he goes now, he probably get a couple hundred grand. So he's, he's, he's well sought after. So those are the hardest players to manage because they've got options. Players now who've been committed to West Indies cricket don't have many options. Oh, I'll say the problem myself who who was turned down at the contracts to play for West Indies. Now, I could sit down here safely and say I've I've, I've passed up a lot of money to play for West Indies. Like, and I want to say a lot of money. Like, I I could could have been a lot more well off than I actually am. I consider myself really blessed because you know I've I've made I think I've made a lot of money in my life for a guy at my age. But I could have, I could have probably made a lot more, you know. But I had that. I've always had that desire to play for West Indies. Like coming up, there was never T Twenty cricket, so mm. you know the only only way to make your mark was playing international cricket. And you know, I I I I wouldn't. I I would honestly say that I don't know if I'd make the same decisions if I were if I were older at that stage. Uh, and I, and I always sympathise with a guy who. Is kind of at the middle middle point of their career. I I got it early. I played West Indies at twenty one. I played first class cricket at seventeen years old. Mm. These those are things that are not are not they're not um that that don't happen very often. So for me to do it, I I kind of had age on my side. Whereas a guy may come into West Indies at twenty eight, twenty seven. You know, he's got different 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 um, scenario in front of him. So I can't be upset with a guy wanting to run around the world at twenty eight years old. With an, un, with, an, with an unsecure future West Indies cricket and miss out on an opportunity to, to make a living for himself on, on the circuits. So like these are just a few dilemmas that people are faced with, but you'll never quite understand. My disappointment, however, comes when players like myself give up so much to, to commit to West Indies cricket and then West Indies cricket doesn't kind of, you know, be as accommodating as they, as they possibly can sometimes, you know, and, I've had a few instances where I was very disappointed of how, how things were handled and uh, and that's just a disappointment. But how long could you, you continue to do it? You know, I'm not 29 years old, so I kind of fall into that that middle phase of my, my career now. So for me now, I think I've got to look, a, I've got to be a little bit more selfish now. Mm, I was going to ask secure. you, yeah. Because yeah, you're 29 now. Yeah, 29 now. Um, yeah, and... Again, I've got the world in front of me in terms of options. You know, I don't have to play international cricket. I can play anywhere I want around the world. I, I played in England. I played corner cricket. Played in Australia. Played in New Zealand. So, look, opportunities are always in front of me in terms of making money and, and things. But I, 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 I've always been a firm believer in that things will happen for me when they, when they're supposed to happen. And I know I'll make money. I know I'm, I'm, I can make Matt what I've lost, but I know I'll, there there's a lot more money out there for me to be made um, to, to to be made as well too. So yeah, but yeah, I'm not at that crossroad where I'm not going to give up West Indies cricket, but it could be a scenario where I've got to think a little bit more about how I can open up my my calendar year for a few more tournaments around the world. Definitely. I mean, you on the back of the New Zealand tour, you managed to squeeze in some games for the BBL which was great. And then you also had some time in the, the IPL as well. Um, but with the, t- the team, are, have they gone, they've gone to Bangladesh already. And a lot of the players or some of the players 
uh, turned down the option to go, obviously due to the current predicament of the, of the uh, pandemic, which is a completely valid reason. But in, in the same breath, I did want to ask you, um, because franchise cricket is now so enormous, and I know that the Super 50 is starting whilst the tour is still going on. Not yours necessarily, but were there, is that a contributing factor for some players to decide to not go on that tour, do you think? Um, look, most, if not all, the guys had the con- their, their personal concerns over the mm. integrity of a bubble in Bangladesh. Um, we asked a few questions because we had a few Zoom meetings. We asked a few questions on them. And, and the players who opted not to go, I guess, weren't happy with before it was being proposed. Me, personally, it was a different story. Um, I had just been on the road for, for too long. You know, I've, I've, had, I've had a bubble in England, bubble in Trinidad, um, bubble in Dubai. I had two weeks quarantine in, in New Zealand. And then I went to Australia to be back in a kind of a semi-bubble because we were pretty restrictive over there as well too. And I just was just mentally exhausted, man. Mentally exhausted. And the bubble life is not easy, man. There's not mm. much to do. You're just stuck in a hotel from ground to hotel. And after the tour in New Zealand with West Indies, it was a very disappointing tour. And yeah, I was just really frustrated, you know, very, very frustrated. And, and I haven't shared this with, with, the, with the public as yet, but people have just obviously made their, their own assumptions as to why I, why I haven't gone on a tour. And everybody just put it down to, well, I, I, I just didn't want to go or whatever the case would be. And then it, the, my couple was saying I wasn't happy with the integrity of bubble in Bangladesh. But for me, I was just to the point where I've had a lot of cricket. Mm. And it wasn't planned per se because I, I had only obviously planned to go to England. There was a CPL. And then for me, I was going to have a, a good break off before going to New Zealand. And then the op- IPL opportunity came. So I literally only had like a week, a week between the IPL and, 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 and the CPL. So I then suddenly gone from knowing that I would have some time off escape bubble life to be in back into, thrown back into bubble life. And yeah, I was just mentally exhausted, man. I moved around six months on the road and I just get to the, got to the point where look, I, I couldn't manage a bubble in Bangladesh. I honestly just couldn't manage it. So that was my, my, my number one reason for, for pulling out. Um, and yeah, I, I, again, it was a hundred percent, Sold on the bubble in Bangladesh. Um, unfortunately, I just saw that one of our players um, had had co- has COVID. Yeah, and he's missing out on tour, which is something that um, none of us wanted. But it's still good to see that the, the num- there, there were no there was nobody else who 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 tested positive. And, and I just hope that I can remain that way. But yeah, that was just a little bit about. Um, no, absolutely. Uh, I, I think it's so. a really important uh, to talk about the bubbles because I, sp- I spoke to Sam Curran about his time. And of course, yep. he, he, he's had a similarly long time in a bubble and it is absolutely exhausting because it's very difficult to switch off from cricket. And I'm curious, how, 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 what, did, what did Jason Holder do you know, when, you know, to switch off? Because you know, often you're living at the grounds um, for a lot of this. Um, what, what, what do you do to even consider switching off from cricket when you are just immersed in this bubble with your team? I could honestly say, like, the bubble in England was probably the hardest one because we stayed at the ground in Manchester. So we landed in Manchester. We were driven from the airport to the ground at Manchester, Old Trafford. And we didn't leave Old Trafford for three weeks. 
So we obviously couldn't leave. So we just, and we literally stay at the hotel on the ground. So you wake up and you're woken up by the, the sound of the hover cover. So the ground staff obviously moving off the hover cover. And you hear that and say, what's the saying to yourself? Oh, geez, it's time to get up. Uh, you look outside, you look over your balcony, there's the ground. So in a way, now I kind of regret having a, a room overlooking the, the ground because it was just always constantly in your face, man. Uh, yes, the room was a lot nicer having a balcony and such, but to have a, a room, you just wake up, you look outside and the ground is there. You literally walk downstairs onto the ground, your day starts, come back up off the ground. You try to switch off, but the ground is there, you know, and it, it was tough, man. And then going to Southampton was, was the same thing because, again, the hotel at the ground overlooking, your, your balcony overlooking the, overlooking the ground and it was just suddenly always in your face, man. So, I mean, it became really, really tough. You couldn't leave, so there's no, there was no golf. There, was, there wasn't much that you could do, so that was hard. IPL was t- tough because there were just so many restrictions, man, and then you, you're constantly being tested as well. So I was saying to my, my friends the other day that probably, uh, probably close to 100 COVID tests. Wow. Since, yeah, probably close to 100 COVID tests since they all started. And it's just crazy, man. Just just crazy how people think it's just, you know, breath of fresh air. You just jump up and you, you live in a dream. Yeah, you live in a dream, but, you know, there's so many contributing factors to that could drive you to, 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 to that level of insanity, man. And, yeah, I commend lots of celebrities, lots of public figures, sportsmen, because I know how hard it is of a life to live. And... Yeah, you'd, you'd pay to do something you love and paid really well to do it, but it comes, there's a lot that comes with the territory. <clears throat> that comes with the territory. So, yeah, that's just a bit of, a bit of the bubble life, man. It's very exhausting um, to switch off. For me, it's only just movies. And then, again, my normal thing, just chilling in another guy's room and just, just talking, you know, and trying not to talk cricket, but just yeah. having fun, just crap talking and, uh, and enjoyment. It's very, very difficult to just break out of that, I've got to say. Were there any... Uh... Were there any um, games in the the West Indies uh, dressing room slash uh, hotels that you got you played? We had a games room in, in in England as well. We had a really good games room. So we had like a basketball hoop. We had a golf simulator. We had an F one simulator. We had table tennis tables. We had um, snooker tables. So there was a bit to do, and that was really the 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 offloading zone. You know, where players just going <laughs> and try to have some fun, and there were also drinks and stuff in. In um in the team room, so we had a bit of bites. We had some snacks as well too. So there was a bit bit to do. So the 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 actual bubble itself in England was probably the best bubble in terms of organization because we had a hotel for ourselves. We had a team room where we had a number of games. So there's all activities to to be had there in um in England. But oh. Afterwards, man, it just became tougher and tougher because we didn't have such such lit luxuries <laughs> anywhere else. Mm. And yeah, I mean, when I look back on it now, I think it's commendable the way we've handled it, man. It's really commendable because it has been tough. And when you're struggling, man, are you in a bubble and you can't go anywhere, man, it is difficult, man. It is really, really difficult. So, yeah, credit to each and every individual who's gone through it, man. <laughs> Definitely, I couldn't agree more. We, we're, I'm excited to hear that you're going back to the IPL. Same team, very exciting. 
we've got to also look to the future as you've said as well you kind of maybe maybe thinking from a personal perspective now with West Indies franchise cricket and everything at kind of a, at a pinnacle stage in your career can we uh, is there any any other contract signed for for the year or or is that very much under under the the table at the moment <laughs> no um Right now, it's just the IPL. I enjoy my big bass stint. I had a really, really good time in Australia, man. And I did well on the field as well, too. So, and we're doing well as a side. I say we are. Obviously, <laughs> Sydney's still at the top of the table and we've already qualified for the next phase. So, yeah, they made me feel really welcome. Man. I honestly feel that that's the best bunch of people I've ever been around. No, hands down. Those people are awesome. You know, you've got Jodie Hawkins, who's the CEO of the franchise, and she's, she's absolutely amazing. L Thompson, she was our team manager. You know, those two were hand in hand and making everything possible for that group. And they're like the mothers of the other group, man. And everybody else should just just make sure that they're they're all well. Greg Shippert, our coach, you know, very, very chill, easygoing customer. And he made the whole environment well organized. And then they're well led, man. Daniel Hughes has done an outstanding job in the absence of Moses Enriquez who was with the test team. I just saw him when he came back and he did really well. We lost yesterday, but, you know, he came back and he's he got a half century. And I obviously had big Carlos is there. Carlos was there, sorry, with me as well, which made it easy because I've seen a familiar face in, in a foreign dress room. But that group of people in, in Sydney Sixers, man, I, I would also, I mean, it comes close to the group in North Hans. So I've, I've told my agent, and my, me and my agent have massive debates, you know, because we always, I guess as an agent, you want the best deal. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. you got to be happy. Yeah, you got to be happy as well, too. But I like loyalty, man. I'm, I'm a loyal customer, man. So I, one thing I've never wanted to be is a club hopper. So I told him North Hans for life, man, because I went to North Hans and, man, it was an awesome experience, man. The guys in North Hans are just totally, totally great, man. A great bunch of people. Um, Alex Wickley was the captain on that stage but you got people like Alex Wickley Rob Keogh looked after me so he was like my, my little brother or big brother then you got a guy like um, Luke Proctor uh, he's, an, he's an amazing character man so Luke sat next to me in the dressing room Nathan Buckwell would have played youth cricket wedding in, um, in New Zealand uh, he was in that dressing room as well too Adam Rossington you know just to name a few Richard Levy you know and you, you've got people people in that group too who made life really, really easy, man. And I enjoy county cricket. Definitely a place I'll definitely go back. I'll definitely, I did well in county cricket as well too. So, yeah, I mean, it's good to travel around the world, but when you travel around the world um, to be like the, the pro, the pro and the team or the overseas player, you still got to stand it at home, man. You got to, you got to bring something really different to the table. You got to win games with the team. And, yeah, luckily it was really, really good for, for North Hans. And they were happy with me in, in the dressing room as well, too. Uh, and similarly with Sydney Sixers. So, yeah, so trying to create a few homes around the world. <laughs> Definitely. I'm, I'm pleased that you, uh, you enjoyed the British culture. This is probably the most important question of the entire <laughs> podcast right now. How does the British beer compare to a Banks? <laughs> Um, there's no <laughs> comparison, man. Like, you know, I'm obviously a, a, a homebred guy, so I just feel I'm very, very loyal. So I've got no choice but to say a Banks beer uh, over any other English lager, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. A warm ale isn't quite the same, is it? <laughs> no chance, no chance, no chance. Um, Jason, I'm coming to, to sort of the end, but I bit Coming to, to, to the end of the podcast, but I, there are two questions that I ask every guest that comes on the podcast. Uh, and the first one being, what advice 
would you give to a young aspiring cricketer looking to break into the sport? Look, the first piece of advice, I, 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 it's hard to just pinpoint one. So I said the first piece of advice is understand yourself. You know, I think that's a massive, massive part of, of being successful. I love you need to understand yourself, what gets you going, you know, when you're under stress, um, when you're at your best, when, when, when you're not performing at your best, you know, just, just have a clear sense of understanding of how you operate as an individual. For me, once you have that understanding, then you're able to formulate plans around it or, or like a defense mechanism. It's, it's like, if this happens, then I know I'm in this state. You know, if, if, if this happens, then I know I'm in this state. And I just have a clear understanding. I find a lot of players don't understand themselves. And, and when under pressure, it definitely shows them because they're not able to pull themselves out of that, out of that, out of that hole. And the last piece of advice I always give people is, is no point doing cricket. There's no point doing any sport, anything in life without enjoyment. You know, if, if it is a drag for you, for me, I feel as the day you should hang at your boots, man. You, should, you, should, you shouldn't do anything that you're not enjoying. So enjoyment has to, has to be filled with it. If I'm not enjoying my cricket, then it makes it harder to play, man. It's a mental, it's a mental drag at that stage. So enjoyment and knowing yourself to me are two, two of the pieces that I myself give to any cricketer. Absolutely. Wise words as well. Um, my final question uh, that I ask everybody is, what does the word headstrong mean to you? <laughs> headstrong. Um, when I honestly heard headstrong, I was trying to, trying to actually work out what it was. No, I was just wondering if it was a, if it was a phrase for strong-headed people or if it was actually like a, a charity where, you know, it was based around um some kind of brain trauma i was honestly trying to try to, to to work it out but for me i guess the word headstrong means or it could mean just having a, a strong mental capacity you know being very very level-headed um being very very great under pressure and having a strong head you know um, <laughs> so i guess that's what it means for me in a nutshell yeah, absolutely. Uh, wow, it's something something that you definitely need as a West Indies skipper. I tell you that much. <laughs> uh, Jason, thanks so much for uh, doing the podcast. I really appreciate it. And um, I hope everyone has enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. We are supporting the Ruth Strauss Foundation with Headstrong and Innings With. Sir Andrew Strauss lost his wife to non-smoking lung cancer in 2018. Just before her death, Ruth and Andrew discussed the idea of setting up a foundation to help other families who would be facing a similar ordeal. The Ruth Strauss Foundation wants to ensure that all families with dependent children facing the death of a parent are offered emotional support and guidance to prepare for the future, allowing them to make the most of their time together. In tandem, they are driving the need for more research and collaboration in the fight against non-smoking lung cancers, which are on the rise and to which Ruth ultimately lost her life. You can support their cause by making a donation today. To donate, text RSF10 to 70191 to donate £10. Or you can donate online at virginmoneygiving.com forward slash fund forward slash headstrong forward slash rsf thank you for all your support of headstrong and the ruth strauss foundation 
And that is it for this episode of Headstrong. A huge thank you to the legend that is Jason Holder for giving up his time to have a chat with me on this episode. I wish him the best of luck in 2021 and beyond, and I hope to see lots of cricket from him and indeed a lot of runs and a lot of wickets in the future. Now, if you have enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating, a review, and indeed send it to your family and friends. But most importantly, if you want to, and you can spare the change, it would be great if you could donate to the Ruth Strauss Foundation, texting RSF10 to 70191. I will see you next week for another episode of Headstrong. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.